Welcome to Work Better, the podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, Editor-in-Chief of Work Better Magazine. You know, business leaders have been trying to crack the code on innovation forever, but today's guest, Dr. Simona Huja, has a new take on innovation. And of course, it's about filling some unmet need or solving that problem that no one's figured out yet. But she says it's also about engaging and retaining talent. Simone is CEO of a global innovation strategy firm called Blood Orange. She's a best-selling author, and her latest book is Disrupt It Yourself. So after we talk to Simone, we'll be joined by Amber Matthews, and she's the director of Workspace Futures Research for Steelcase in Asia and Europe. She spent a lot of time studying innovation within companies and how to support innovative teams. So stick around for that. Welcome, Simone. Thank you. It's so fun to be here with you. Well, thanks for being here. Um, I'd like to start out just by talking about like where your passion about innovation came from. And if you can talk a little bit also about your research, because that is really unique. Absolutely. I'm going to answer that in two different ways, the original and the new, renewed passion in innovation. Okay. The original passion for innovation came out of research that I was doing in India for Best Buy as we were thinking about what is happening in emerging markets. This was back in 2008, 2009, what's changing. And as I was doing that research, what I learned about was something called Jugad. So as I was researching, we were actually filming. We were making these sort of business case studies and vignettes on film, video for Best Buy. And whenever we ran into a problem, so it was, you know, we were in the, the deserts, we were, you know, there was a bridge that was out, anything that was happening, my teams in India would say, well, let's do some jugad. we'll figure it out, let's do some jugad." And I remember thinking, wow, what is that? Let's do it. <laughs> we have no choice, right? Either we're going to run out of money or run out of water or fuel. Let's, let's figure it out. And what I learned from them was that it was this way to quickly assess the resources that you have rather than what I was doing, frankly, which was focusing on what we didn't have and figure out a solution that wasn't always a perfect solution, a little bit of a hack, but got us to where we needed to go. And I saw them do this over and over and over again. And I, I realized, I learned later that this is a colloquial term in India, jugad. And originally it was like a jury rigged farm vehicle where you pull parts from a whole bunch of different vehicles, put it together, and then create this vehicle that may not pass safety inspections in the US, but for small scale farmers, it's all they have. And what it does is it plows. You know, you can use it for transporting people, multiple uses. So that's the original use of the word jugad is that jury-rigged farm vehicle. And then it became this colloquial term for jury-rigging or hacking a solution in a kind of fast and frugal way. And then what I did with my co-authors as we learned more about this, because we realized that large organizations and resource-constrained environments like India were doing this too, is we codified it. And we gave it a, we established some principles that we didn't make up. I mean, we codified it, but people have been doing this for millennia. That was the most fascinating things. Grassroots entrepreneurs have been doing this forever. They don't have R&D labs. They don't have always formal education, but they're still solving really big 
pressing problems. So that's the genesis of Jugad Innovation. And really, the thing about the resources that was so powerful is it's totally democratizing. Once you get out of the mindset that, oh, I don't have to have a ton of resources to solve problems, I can rely on what I observe, what I understand, a, a simple process, all of a sudden you start to shift who's in the position to innovate and you might just put yourself in that seat. So that was the first thing. I think my renewed passion for innovation comes because I realized that innovation principles and innovation practices and methods are so relevant to everything we do. I use it in parenting. I can tell you about that later if you like. I use it, you know, in I use it in business day to day. So there's a high high relevance and efficacy, not just in in innovation, but outside of innovation, even as we think about things like how do I empower people on my teams? How do I build engagement? I do want to talk a little bit more about any form of innovation and parenting. I, I think we'd all be interested in that. But before we go there, though, I want to ask about where leaders are at right now, because, you know, we've been talking about innovation since I was in business school a million years ago. And, you know, leaders right now, I feel like they have so much coming at them. You know, they're trying to solve for whole new ways of working and hybrid work and there's supply chain disruptions and there's wars and energy issues and climate change. And the list is just endless. So, why should they be spending time thinking about innovation when they've got all of these big world problems that they're trying to solve? Yeah, you bring up something really important, Chris, about time. So one thing when we think about innovation that I always like to share with folks is that innovation, we need to reframe it. So innovation, what is it? Innovation is creating new value, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't have to be, it's a new idea that creates value, doesn't have to be the big iPhone or, or, you know, the next flying car. It's just a new way to add value. Um, so that's one. And the second thing is innovation can't be thought of as a shiny object. I think we have to reframe it as something that if we have existing business goals or if we have a strategy, innovation is an approach. It's a mindset. It's a methodology that is going to help us advance those goals faster and better and potentially with fewer resources. So when we think about it that way, because that's true, because we know that organizations simply cannot sustain without innovation, then we might start to think about, well, do we have the time for this? Now, all that to say, I want to really acknowledge it is really hard to be a leader or a manager right now. And there isn't a lot of time because we're not always focused on mid to long term. We're often focused on short term and short term. The pain, of course, is how do I retain my people? How do I keep them engaged? How do I make this a sandbox that they want to play in? And my answer is entrepreneurship and innovation. So entrepreneurship is acting like an internal entrepreneur inside of an organization, oftentimes moving the needle on innovation. And what I've observed in my own practice over the years, and this is where I think I've had a big change in my own thinking. If years ago I was like, innovation is the way forward. It's the right thing to do. Everyone should understand that because innovation helps you sustain, develop new solutions, advance a society. What I didn't realize then that I know now and see in real time every single day is that innovation and entrepreneurship particularly help drive engagement. When you empower people and when they have the trust and they have a simple process and they have a little bit of support, 
So what we also know is that managers and leaders don't have time to go through every single idea with entrepreneurs. That's why we like to give people a really simple framework around it. But when you do that, you're creating a culture that people want to be a part of. So engagement in entrepreneurship are inextricably linked. People love solving problems where they can be passionate about what they're doing, design a part of the way forward or all of the way forward and feel real progress, not just the massive mission of, you know, we're going to solve massive problem X, but I have this problem I'm working on and I can see how I'm making progress towards that goal every single day. It's really powerful. I want to double click on that one a little bit because, you know, one of the problems that organizations and leaders are facing right now is attracting talent. And one of the things I was really fascinated about in your research is when you found that younger people like recent graduates aren't super excited about going to work for large organizations. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what you were looking for and what you found in that research? It was an Accenture annual survey. And in that survey, and this was pre-pandemic, so we imagine the numbers to be lower now, but it was 14% of new graduates don't want to work in large organizations. Why? They don't feel moved by it. There's There's a trend towards working in startups or establishing something on your own. There's a trend toward working in highly purpose driven organizations and large organizations Some of them are getting pretty crisp and clear about what it means to be a purpose-driven organization. Very few of them have been in the past, and some of them are still trying to figure it out. So what's happening is we're trying to engage people often with an old approach. You know, you'll have this job with this job description and make this much money. And what a lot of newer grads particularly are looking for is, a purpose. And in innovation, we often use this term MTP, massive transformative purpose. It's sort of like, it's not a mission. It's an audacious goal that becomes like a North Star that people can really rally around. And when you start to build something like that, whether it's at the macro enterprise level or on the, you know, micro level as a leader or manager, and I strongly believe in the power of microcultures, you can really build something where people want to stay on your team. So I think leaders, they really do have to find the time and maybe not a lot of time to go into every problem with every person, but to support innovation and entrepreneurship and provide simple tools like a process through which people can move their ideas. And even just doing little things like building in a signal um, that innovation is important because it's a signal of trust. Ultimately, we trust that you have good ideas. We trust that you understand what is important and that we will advance our business strategy and our goals. And we trust that you can take steps forward to figure it out. So you were talking about engagement, and I'm just wondering if you feel like innovation work is an opportunity to help people feel more engaged and create that sense of belonging, a sense of community even at work that you know people are really craving. Yeah, and you're so right. They are craving it. It's really interesting, Chris. Absolutely. The answer is absolutely 
yes, innovation and entrepreneurship in particular is a way to drive engagement. And it's a way that's not, it's not something that's tacked on. It's a way to drive engagement that really benefits the individual, right? It's personal development, it's leadership development, and then it advances the goals of the organization. Because what we see is that entrepreneurs are really good at co-design. Entrepreneurs are not the lone wolf. You know, they're not off in a little lab somewhere or in their garage tinkering away like we used to maybe think about entrepreneurship or even entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs are really good at co-design. So, you know, they build small teams to help advance their ideas. They help enroll people and enlist them into their process, help them understand why is this important to you and to us and our larger organization. So they create this shared vision. You know, there's this expression we use, it's called the hipster, the hacker, and the hustler. Mm-hmm. The hipster is the person with the big idea. The hacker is the person with the business or the tech know-how. And then the hustler is the person who socializes or evangelizes the idea and keeps the energy going so that people are still interested in the idea because we know sometimes a problem in innovation is that there's everything's really hot at the beginning and then things sort of taper out and most entrepreneurs understand that they don't have all three so they've got to build these little teams and what we've seen is that those little teams become like a little family they are rallied around this shared purpose they have the vision for their team in terms of this problem they're solving that they really care about and then they love working together every day and sharing what they learn with others and that's how you build the sandbox people want to play in got it the way you're describing it like it innovators aren't just like these single individuals who are just you know gifted and brilliant but it sounds it sounds like there's a role for more people in the organization to be an entrepreneur. It's, it's so true. There There is a role, and, and it necessarily has to be that way. And I think if we look at what's happening around us socially, you know, we have to really rethink how we're driving innovation. And that's what was interesting to me about Jugad Innovation. If in resource-rich environments, you know, innovation was typically R&D driven out of a lab, so really expensive. It was mm-hmm. top down. It was insular, done by the people whose job is it is to innovate, like the people in the white coats. Dugard innovation, frugal innovation is another word for that, is opposite of that. It is frugal. It's flexible. It's inclusive, both in terms of who's solving problems and who are you solving problems for. Right? So you're not always just thinking about the upper, upper echelons all the time or the most seasoned or the person that went to the Ivy Leagues. That's not what it's about. It's about people who have great ideas, people who've observed a pain point over and over and over again. Those are the people who need to be a part of this, especially if they want to. So I'll give you a quick example. We were working with a Fortune 10 organization, one of their COEs, and their biggest touch points with their end users were in a call center. Now, a lot of people probably don't think of the folks in their call centers as conduits that help them drive innovation, but in this, in, they actually are in many cases. And what we did was build a pipeline to help those folks share the themes that they heard over and over again. So they didn't get diluted by the time they got to the ivory tower back in corporate. Um, So when we think about entrepreneurship, you're going to have instead of big pockets, you know, big ticket innovation, which is not to say that's not important. It certainly is. But you're going to have cells of innovation all over your organization. And you have to have both. So 
it's a way to move from only innovation elite or innovation elite to yes, big moonshot. Plus, we need to have a portfolio approach. We need cells of innovation to ensure that we are driving innovation every single day. So we're advancing our business more. So we're meeting the needs of our end users more. So we're developing our people, making them feel good and whole, have better mental health. I mean, it really all goes together. Yeah, it sounds like a much better place to work, you know, when you have these small teams, these kind of like almost family units, the way you describe it, where people are just working together to solve an idea. So then what kind of mistakes do you see organizations make when they're trying to foster innovation? What advice would you have for them? (laughs) Uh, You know, I often joke that when, you know, people always say like, what are the, what are the three things that leaders ask you about innovation? And the questions I usually get are, you know, how do we innovate without spending a lot of money? Mm. How do we build a culture of innovation? And then the last one is, it's a little bit of a joke because it's kind of the subtext of the question, which is how do we change without really changing? (laughs) And the reason is, not because these folks aren't seasoned leaders or they're not doing, you know, you know, carrying the weight of large organizations. It's just because it's so hard. Change is hard. Yeah, Change is hard. So I would say the most important thing is not maybe don't think of innovation just at a macro enterprise wide level. Think of it at a micro level. What is the power of building the interconnected microcultures, keeping it small? And then when you are talking about innovation, I would say one of the biggest problems in innovation is we hear a lot leadership talking about it, and then we hear feet on the street like, wow, we're excited about it, but the managers in the middle get stuck. And that's why I've actually developed a process called recontracting, where the individuals then can go to their manager and say, hey, I have this hunch about a problem that is relevant. Here's how it connects to our business goals. Here's my plan to take it forward. Here's one specific way I need your help, not can you boil the ocean with me? Uh, And here's when I'd like to check back with you. What do you think? So it takes the weight off of the managers and leaders and makes them more likely and able to support innovation. And I think, you know, so, so I think it's giving people the tools so that they can come in that way. Also, I would say if you're looking at it from a little bit more of a macro level, you do have to really start thinking about metrics. Um, Where does it show up? What moves the needle in your organization? If you want more innovation, you're going to have to measure for it in some ways. And then finally, governance. So who's, who's got skin in the game? You know, the past couple of years have been tough on everybody in, in so many different ways. But it's also accelerated innovation in some respects. And at the same time, you know, as teams are working differently, particularly where you've got some teams that are coming together in person, which is maybe the way we've thought about innovation happening in the past, Um, But now you have a combination of people who are remote and people who are in the office together. Like, how do you build social capital with teams when you've got them distributed? If you're trying to build that kind of unit, if you will, that is going to help support innovation. Mm -hmm. When you start really embodying and understanding the idea of trust in relationships and psychological safety. When you start to build environments where people do bring their whole selves, so it's not just, oh, we have X, Y, and Z at the table, but X, Y, and Z really feel like they can add in 
and be a part of a conversation, that is when I think you can start to build social capital that's much more meaningful than what we had before. You know, now we're in a hybrid environment, of course, where some of the conversations are going to happen back at the office and some of the conversations are going to happen in virtual environments. For some people, virtual environments can be a more comfortable one where people can chat in or they can chat directly to someone who can share their answer. So there are all kinds of ways that we can think about building social capital in this new environment. If I think about two words that come to mind to drive that so that we can just have better workplaces that solve more problems, grow and be the kind of places that people want to spend time in and they're positive. So people can then spread that positivity outward. It's, you know, the first is trust. And the second is empathy. What does it take for me to help build trust and psychological safety in my group? So before I let you go, I have to circle back to the conversation about parenting, because you said you use some of the things that you've learned in parenting. And I just imagine everybody would be fascinated to connect those dots for us, if you would. Yeah, innovation is full of so many things. Like, for example, that that connect to parenting relationships with your partner, all kinds of things that I didn't realize probably when I started studying innovation and researching innovation. You know, one very quick example, not related to my son specifically, but about how do we get things done generally is something I've developed called the Entrepreneur's Code. And it's a five-step process that we use that's been codified from the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, they all generally take the same approach to move Mm. from idea to execution. And I use it at home as well when I'm just trying to get things done. It's a really powerful way to move forward and execute. With regard to my son, I think the example that makes me laugh pretty much every day when I think about it is during the pandemic when we were homeschooling, my son was five years old. He was in kindergarten and he did not want to write. He wouldn't practice writing. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to fill out his worksheets. And, you know, frankly, in my purview, you know, maybe this is part of my Indian upbringing. I was like, what? You're five years old and you can't write? And really I was, you know, I I didn't think that was okay. And we butted heads and we pushed and pushed. And guess what happens when you push people? Nothing. They get really, well, not nothing, actually a big drama, right? Five-year-old drama did not work, did not go well. It was headbutting over and over and over again. And, you know, just I remember during those days, we also had an infant at the time. We were so tired because we were both working, trying to manage all of this. And my son asked me how to spell a couple of, let's say, unsavory words. And I told (laughs) him because I was so tired. And then next thing I know, we have signs with those words spelled on every single door in the house. Uh Uh-oh. All of a sudden, he's writing. But what I realized, I was like, well, that was easy. And here's where it comes back to innovation. In innovation, we talk about unmet and important needs of our users that aren't like the jobs to be done. What are their functional needs? What do they have to do? What are their emotional needs? How do they have to feel? What are their social needs? How do they want to be perceived? And what I realized is, oh, if I had only applied that framework, it would have been so easy because I was worried about a a milestone I made up in my head. I was worried about potentially how I might be perceived as a parent. I didn't feel good 
about parenting in this ad hoc way we were doing back then. I was, that was going to give me a landmark to say, oh, I'm a good parent. My kid can write. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing this in the pandemic. None of that worked. What worked was his job to be done. His unmet need was having fun, was being a curious five years old who's like pushing the limits a little bit. He's, he's making his parents a little uncomfortable. And as soon as that need was met, the job got done. And so and that is where I realized that all of these, if only I had applied these principles to my home life earlier, things would have been so much easier. And so, you know, I try to do that more and more. Uh, but that's really the, the, the calculus of that story. And so I, I love to share. I'll share with you if you ever see me in action at Keynote, I'll share with you exactly what those posters look like. I would love to see them, but I think just, you know, starting to think about those unmet needs, whether it's at work or home, uh, is really an interesting uh, place to start. Simone, it has just been great having you here with us today. And so I just really want to thank you for joining us and sharing your work with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And if anybody who's listening wants to get a copy of that Entrepreneur's Code, a worksheet that's fillable, a PDF that they can just use on their own or with a small team, they can just go to my website, which is simonahuja.com, and they'll get a pop-up and you can sign up for a newsletter and get the worksheet right away. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing. My pleasure. Joining us today is Amber Matthews, and Amber is the Steelcase Director of Workspace Futures, which is our research organization at Steelcase. And she's responsible for research in Asia Pacific, Europe, the Middle East, Africa. So uh, welcome, Amber. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I was really struck when Simone was saying that such a large percentage of new college graduates don't want to work in large organizations. And, you know, we're a larger organization, so you know, I thought a lot about that. And what I found really interesting was her idea about how we can use the activity of innovation to actually help engage people uh, in their work. And I was curious about some of the things that you're seeing you know, living in Asia and also having kind of this global perspective. I was just curious about what you're seeing in terms of the changes that have gone on in terms of innovation and whether you think that could be a path to help engage employees. Well, absolutely, Chris. It was it was really interesting that Simone talked about innovation as an engagement strategy. Um, we were also seeing a trend away from the previous aspirations to work in large multinational companies. Um, name recognition doesn't seem to hold the same level of prestige for younger workers. Mm. Um, and we're seeing that priorities are shifting. Uh, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, in a recent survey by KPMG, we saw six cities in Asia Pacific were ranked in the top 10 across the world that industry executives were believing would flourish as technology innovation hubs in the next three to four years. And we're seeing Asia Pacific continue to see more unicorns uh, that is, mm -hmm. private companies worth more than a billion dollars mm -hmm. emerging across the region. And in fact, Asia alone accounts for about 40% of worldwide unicorns. And talent is attracted to this growth potential. Mm. But it's such a tight labor market at the moment. Um, we certainly see that in our own research, as well as that of, of others, such as PwC, 
something like 57% of employees are reporting being satisfied with their job. Mm. It's a pretty low number. Mm -hmm. And the number who are looking to leave their current employer is particularly high in certain markets like Hong Kong, which is 45%, Japan, which is 43%, and Singapore, which is 46%. And Singapore is, is considered one of the startup hubs for the region. And so as you can imagine, it's pretty big numbers and there should be uh, a wake-up call for companies across the region. Yeah, I, it's really surprising to hear those kinds of numbers. And for that wake-up call that you're talking about, Simone's idea about engaging people in innovation practices and activities sounds like a really interesting strategy, as you said. And you know, she used this terminology where she talked about a hipster and a hacker and a hustler. And, you know, so you have the person with a big idea and you have people who have the business or technology and, you know, the hustler who kind of goes out and rallies the troops to get excited about these ideas. Has your work shown or given you an indication that the workplace is actually an aid to help support these kind of micro cultures of innovation with an organization? Can the workplace be part of a solution companies should be thinking about? Well, that's a great question. And, and a very important point from Simone, innovation is a team sport. Mm-hmm. I think it's imperative to have uh, diverse and overlapping skill sets, such as those um, you just mentioned. And a workplace can be a fantastic place to develop and strengthen those kind of relationships. I think the inventor and innovator are often conflated, but it requires mm-hmm. that collaboration piece that you just mentioned to drive ideas to adoption, to execution. So we see that in our work that uh, conversations are a vehicle pushing innovation forward, a collaboration, uh, for example. Mm. Um, Conversations best happen in containers for culture, such as office environments, where teams, whether they are individual uh, contributors, becoming temporary teams or teams who have been together for longer, um, have this space to get work done together um, or to to socialize, to learn from one another, to celebrate together and to become that community of success. I find, as with the previous um, discussion, people are drawn to that kind of environment because success is infectious. So that culture of innovation is something that people want to be part of. Yeah, I like what you just said about container for culture. I don't know if everybody thinks about their their workplace as having that role. You know, a lot of times we just think of it as the place where we we go to do our work, but not necessarily that it's, you know, this place that shapes our culture and our behaviors so much. You know, I also was really intrigued by Simone's point about innovation being something that's very flexible and fluid or frugal rather. And You know, I thought that was curious because in a lot of organizations, we tend to think about the innovation people as these, you know, this kind of elite class, or maybe it's, you know, a leadership role or not necessarily kind of something that everybody can participate in. And I just wonder what you would think about our workplaces as whether it's a container or a vehicle to help everybody feel like they're part of an innovation process. Mm, Absolutely. I really liked when uh, Simone said innovation can and indeed indeed should be inclusive Mm -hmm. because I think she's previously written that most Western firms have assimilated that idea that an innovation system, like any other industrial system, uh, generates more output 
in the way of innovations if it's fed more input in the way of resources. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely structured in that way and therefore very capital intensive, mm-hmm. which requires this abundant supply of resources. And right now we know those are pretty scarce. So as you described, um, many people, unless they're employed specifically in research or product development, don't think of themselves as innovators. Right. And indeed, traditional managers have perhaps discouraged people from inventing new ways of doing things um, because they want to put them into uh, established guidelines or following procedures. But I think there's been a shift, and we can see this across the world. Um, for example, design thinking becoming democratized Mm -hmm. in the same way this mindset of innovation being part of the fabric of the company is being embraced i think by the more progressive organizations they're starting to recognize that identifying and solving for real needs is uh, something that has to come from every part of the company Mm -hmm. and that there's great value in encouraging a spirit of innovation simone's terminology for her book jugad innovation That originates from India, is that correct? That's right. It's a great description as an innovative fix for your business. Mm -hmm. It just basically means an improvised solution born from ingenuity and cleverness. Mm -hmm. And if we think about it, the conditions that make that kind of innovation so worthwhile have have been typically more prevalent in Asia-Pacific markets, such as India, where the term does originate from, um, and indeed China, than perhaps in Europe or the United States. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, we can see that even these developed economies have started to exhibit many more of the same aspects of scarcity, of unpredictability, that mean that this kind of innovation, this whether it's a frugal or or not, is uh, a necessity for business continuity. Well, I really appreciate some of your insights, Amber. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited that we got a chance to talk about this together. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for being here with us for this episode of Work Better. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at steelcase.com slash subscribe to sign up for weekly updates on research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. Next week, we're gonna be talking with Lieutenant Colonel Adria Horn, and we reached out to her after we read an article that she contributed to in McKinsey titled, A Military Veteran Knows Why Your Employees Are Leaving. Hmm. As a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve and Executive Vice President of Workforce at Tilson Technology Management, Adria has a really unique perspective on the employee experience, and she draws parallels between returning to the office and returning from deployment. Plus, she says every company needs a beast counselor, so you have to join us next week to hear more about that. So thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. This episode of Work Better is produced by Rebecca Cherbowski. Creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison and Emily Cowdery. Technical support is from Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. Digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks. And editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios.